chapter 2, but we're going to be looking at the later part of the chapter, which is verses 13 through 25. So I invite you to hear these words. John says this, The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, This temple has been under construction for 46 years, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And When he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name because they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, would not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And needed no one to testify about anyone, for he himself knew what was in everyone. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we do pray that on this day, that you will remind us that you are in the rain and you are in the sun. We pray, Lord, that wherever we are on this day, that we would know beyond the shadow of a doubt of your love for us. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So if you were around early last year, you may recall that we had just begun a sermon series going through the whole Gospel of John. And just as we were kind of, you know, really getting some traction on that, all of a sudden COVID hit and we decided to quickly, and I think rightfully so, take a, take a tour, detour and go to Psalms. And so we began then to kind of look through Psalms during much of that season of COVID. Now that's all good, except for what I realized as I sat down uh, a few weeks ago to try to figure out exactly what I was going to preach on today. I realized that all of the, the scripture passages that we have been uh, working on or reading this past, uh, this past week, those first few chapters of John, just a year or so ago, I preached on every single one of them. And so I was kind of wrestling with what exactly should I preach then? I don't want to be redundant. I don't want to just do the exact same story. So I was really wrestling, maybe I should do something else, maybe I should do that picture-perfect Mother's Day sermon, but I said forget it. So I then, as I looked at it through the lens of Grace Dangerous, the, the kind of the sermon title or series title that we're doing, I realized that in many ways this passage that I just read is, is a perfect demonstration of Grace Dangerous. And so this would be the passage, and I thought that would be just right for today. It's 
Passover season. And as you may know, during Passover season, there's this great influx of pilgrims that would come into Jerusalem. Some would suggest almost 300,000 pilgrims who would come into this high holiday. And Jerusalem was always a city that was in a little bit of turmoil, much like it is today. At that point, it was because they were being subjugated by the Romans. And so they were a little bit always on edge. And you can imagine then that that only increased when you had 300,000 more people who didn't like the oppression of the Romans. And so everything is in a bit of turmoil. Everything is in a bit of dis-ease. And in the midst of that, Jesus walks into this temple and he sees all of these animals and he sees these money changers and he decides that he's had enough. Now, as I talked about a year or so ago, we should realize that in many ways this was just kind of a part of, of how religion um, was just kind of was done at that time. If you can imagine, this was when they needed to sacrifice animals. You did that during Passover. But it's hard enough to go a long distance with children. Nonetheless, to have to go a long distance with sheep and, and, and goats and cows and, and doves, you know, that they would do. You know, they always had the little dove on a little leash and collar. I don't know if you know that that's how they did it. It's true. And so, so they don't want to have to go this whole distance, right? And so they made it convenient, right? You could just get to the temple, then you could buy a sheep or a dove much more easily. You know, there was a convenience fee that was uh, charged, but that was okay. You couldn't use, you know, Roman money, so you had to exchange it. That's why they had some money changers that were there. Well, that's all good and fine, but this time, this year, when Jesus came into the temple, he had decided it was enough. And so he makes a, a whip. And as Tim Keller points out, uh, we should realize that unlike what we may render in our minds or unlike what artists have oftentimes depicted this, it wasn't a leather whip. Uh, it was really just made out of reeds or some kind of plant um, that he would use. And so it wasn't like, let's be clear, it wasn't like flesh was being torn off of people or animals. In some ways, um, though this was a very real incident, it was also somewhat symbolic that what Jesus wanted for everyone to know is that this whole system was beginning to change. And so he went in and he began to take this whip of reeds and he began to just kind of whip it and drive people and animals left and right. You can imagine the tumult and the chaos that ensued. And then John tells us that later, not then, but later, the disciples were reminded of the scripture. It happens to be in Psalms, Psalm 69, where it is that the psalmist said, zeal for your house will consume me. Well, the authorities of the time, understandably so, did not like what Jesus was doing. And they didn't know exactly why he thought he could do that. And so they asked him, under what authority are you doing this? What's the sign that gives you the right? And so Jesus gives a cryptic answer, as he oftentimes does, even more cryptic if you don't really know how the, the story goes, and they wouldn't have, because he says, well, you know what? If you were to, if you were to destroy this temple, uh, I would raise it up in three days. And that didn't make any sense to the authorities. They said, you know what, we, this has taken us 46 years to build this temple, and it's still not built yet. You think you can raise it in three days? Even the disciples, we are told, had no idea what he was talking about. In fact, later, after he had been raised from the dead, then they finally understood, oh, this is what you meant. 
And John kind of ends it with what's really kind of this, uh, almost a throwaway comment, though in some reason it's, it's, it's very poignant and, and a wee bit painful as well, which is that he says that the crowds were beginning to grow around Jesus. They were very impressed with his signs. Many more were believing in him, but, but that Jesus was not overly impressed by that. And the reason is because he knew them. In other words, Jesus knows just how fickle our hearts are. And so much like in the Gospel of Luke, as we talked about several weeks ago, when when Jesus preaches this sermon that seems clearly to have the intent of thinning out the crowd because he knew they wouldn't stay with him in difficult times, here again, even though Jesus saw that more and more, the disciples surely saw more and more were beginning to follow him, that he was not doing this for their fame. He was doing this out of his love and his devotion to the Almighty. So it's this great little story that probably most of you know. It's in all four Gospels. And so how do we see grace dangerous? In some ways, it's kind of hard to see grace in this particular passage. But last year when I talked about it, I'm sure you remember. In fact, if I just asked, what did I preach about? Many of you would just stand up here and tell me, wouldn't you? Steve, you want to give it a shot or you just you want to leave it to me? I'll, I'll take this one. Um, so last year when I talked about this, I said, you know, we see the grace in a really clear way. I mean, when Jesus is covertly comparing the temple to his body, what he is telling them, for those who had eyes to see and ears to hear, is that he was going to be the sacrifice. In the days ahead, he would be the sacrifice that would allow us to be forgiven, that would allow us to experience the love and the grace of God. One of the things that Jesus is doing here is he's saying that his life and his death and his resurrection, that these things were changing the system, if you will. It was tearing down. It was saying no longer did you need to sacrifice an animal. No longer would you need to exchange money. No longer even would you need to come to this particular temple in order to experience the presence of God. Jesus is changing all of that. But what he's also doing and I hope that you see this, is this, this, it is a remarkable demonstration, a display of the fact that Jesus is saying that he will allow nothing to get in the way between those he loves and who he is. You see, you just kind of, you can just think about this. What Jesus is doing is he's saying, that, no, you don't need that animal. You don't need that money. You don't even need this temple. What I want you to know is that I will passionately do anything I can to make sure that you know and experience my love and my grace. One of the things that happens, and I hear this from people, is that they oftentimes think there's something, and almost all of us have something, there's something that surely is unforgivable. There is something that there's no way that God could still love me if I did this, or because of the fact that I never did that. Whatever it may be. And one of the things that I would encourage you to do if you have that, if you have something like that, is for you to just picture, just close your eyes, just picture in your mind this scene. Picture Jesus coming in and taking whatever that thing is and casting it aside and saying, no, 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 you need to realize that I will cast everything aside, anything that gets in between me and you whom I love desperately. I love 
that beautiful image of the grace and the passion of Jesus Christ. But there is also, of course, the dangerous part of this story. Uh, Many would suggest, in fact, Scripture really kind of alludes to this, that a part of the reason, a major part of the reason why Jesus was uh, was tried and crucified is because of this particular scene that they understood the religious leaders they understood that Jesus was trying to change everything and that did not sit well with them but what's interesting to note of course is that Jesus realized that Jesus knew that this what he was doing was going to cost him dearly And so John alludes back to a psalm, to Psalm 69, as I said earlier. Now, i got to admit, before this particular week, I didn't spend much time in that psalm. I didn't really go back, at least not as I can recall, and look and say, well, what was the context of this Psalm 69? It's, it's found in Psalm 69.7, and, and I want you to just hear this. It's, I'm going to read between verses 7 and 12, and I want you to hear. Here's how the NRSV translates it. It says, it is for your sake, for your sake, being God's sake, that I have borne reproach That shame has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my kindred, an alien to my mother's children. It is zeal for your house that has consumed me. The insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. When I humbled my soul with fasting, they insulted me for doing so. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the subject of gossip for those who sit in the gate and the drunkards make songs about me. I love that in the NRSV, but I really like the way that Eugene Peterson paraphrases it in the message. And here is how he uh, here's how he paraphrases this passage. Because of you, God, I look like an idiot. I walk around ashamed to show my face. My brothers shun me like a bum off the street. My family treats me like an unwanted guest. I love you, God, more than I can say. Because I'm madly in love with you, they blame me for everything they dislike about you. When I poured myself out in prayer and fasting, all that got me was more contempt. When I put on a sad face, they treated me like a clown. Now drunks and gluttons make up drinking songs about me. What's happening here is the psalmist, of course, is saying, thank you, Claude, I love that last line. Well, the psalmist here is saying, look, I am trying to follow you. I love you. In fact, he says, I love this. I'm madly in love with you. And because of that, I look like an idiot. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed here. They're shaming me. Why? Because I'm trying to follow you. I'm praying. I'm fasting. I'm doing the spiritual practices that you want me to do. And they look at me like I'm crazed. But the psalmist keeps following God. He keeps being a disciple of God in spite of that. So that when John brings up this passage in Psalm 67 or 69, what he is wanting us to realize is that when Jesus was doing these things, when he's casting these things aside, he looked like a crazed fool. 
He was looking like an idiot, and it was going to cost him just like it was costing the psalmist. And yet, Jesus said, that is not nearly as important to me as being consumed by my passion for God. And so he just keeps going in spite of the fact that he was going to look a fool. Now, as I thought about that, I began to ask the question, what were the disciples thinking during this time? I appreciated someone said, you know what, I have a feeling that they were not enjoying this all that much. Right? I mean, I can just imagine them kind of taking a, perhaps a few steps back because they didn't want to see what Jesus was doing. I mean, can't you imagine them being afraid both of flying sheep and of the fact that they were going to be connected to this guy? I mean, they, they were really, they, they liked Jesus at first, right? I mean, who doesn't, right? I mean, I mean, this teaching, Jesus, you're teaching, man, that is splendid. Keep doing that. And the miracles, <laughs> people just start lining up, man, when you do those tricks. It is incredible. But this, man, this has got to stop, Jesus. This is awkward, and it's embarrassing for all of us. This is not going to be helpful, Jesus. If you could just chill a little bit with the craze, like taking the whip, everything. You know, you don't need to do that. You can just be like, hey, I don't like that. That's enough. But no, that's not what Jesus did, right? Jesus said, no, 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 no. None of that. That does not work. And as I thought about myself in place of those disciples, and I thought about the fact that that's probably what I would have been doing, which is why I picture the disciples doing that, I was struck by this quote by Ben Witherington. It's a quote that I both love and I hate at the same time. Here's what Witherington says. He says, most people living in the West today have both a fear and a loathing of what are commonly called religious fanatics. They prefer their religion in measured, small doses that do not cause people to take leave of their common sense. This is good. They prefer being inoculated with a slight case of Christianity, which in effect prevents them from catching the real thing. Is it? That's an amen. I mean, I love that sense of the fact that we want to be common sense Christians in many ways. Do we not? I will be honest with you. It's one of the things that attract me to Presbyterians, as I've said before. Pentecostals, as I was raised, they almost embrace this craziness. But we Presbyterians, we hardly want to clap, nonetheless, do anything else. You know, as I think about this, I realize that in many ways, you know, uh, when, when people talk about the decline of Christianity in the West and in America even more specifically, oftentimes one of the attributes they say, one of the reasons for this is because of crazy Christians. There are too many crazy Christians that are giving Jesus a bad name. And I have to say, I get it. There are times when I think that exact same thing. You know, I've, I've said before that when I go out and if I'm on an airplane or something and someone says, what do you do? You know, it's always just this, oh, geez, right? And it's because, well, I'm a pastor. And then, you know, immediately either if they're one of those aforementioned crazy Christians and they think you must be just like them, so they get really excited, like, shh, shh, shh look quieter. Or they think you must be one of these crazy Christians. And so then they begin to, you know, then, then I have to spend all my time trying to be like, hey, but I'm, I'm fairly normal, Right? 
But the more I thought about this passage in light of this, I had to also then begin to ask myself this particular question, which is, could it not also be possible that a very part of the reason for the decline of Christianity in many of our communities is because actually there aren't enough crazy Christians amongst us. That there's actually not enough of us who are being willing to be idiots for the Almighty. That there's not enough of us who have actually experienced so much the love and this grace of Jesus Christ to which we just spoke that they said, hey, if this is true, if we are truly loved in this way by God, then that changes everything, including everything about the way in which I live. Those of you who have been ZPCers for a while know that ZPCs oftentimes talked about the six marks of a disciple. Things like a mind transformed by the word or, or a heart for Christ alone. I've been wondering this week whether or not we shouldn't actually add a seventh mark of a disciple, which is that you will know that you are on your way to being a, a disciple of Jesus if you begin to act in such ways that people begin to look at you like this. And that if you do something, not just anything, but something for God in such a way that when you do so, people begin to think, what is wrong with you? You've taken this a bit too far. It's almost like you've not just gotten inoculated. It almost seems like you might be consumed by this God. Can you please take this just a bit less seriously? And one of the things that made me really start wrestling with this was something that happened several weeks ago now. I was down and Megan and I were down in Austin, Texas for a wedding of a good friend of mine. And, and, and so we were there and we were talking to, uh, to Sam and to Jamie, this uh, couple who they live in Minneapolis. They, and, and, and several years ago now, they decided to move into uh, what we would consider to be, you know, not the nicest parts of Minneapolis, right? Uh, where they oftentimes will hear shootings and things like that. And they don't have to. Sam, uh, he is a, he's an attorney. And so they very easily, they have the means to live someplace else. But they're also followers of Jesus. And they felt called to, to move there. So, so we were sitting there at the rehearsal dinner. We were standing there and we were just talking talking about, you know, where they live and whatnot. And a woman overheard and she came up and she said, oh, you live in Minneapolis. I live in Minneapolis. Oh, great, small world. This is wonderful. And so they began talking. And so the woman said to them, now where in Minneapolis do you live? And this is what she looked like. Exactly. <laughs> I'm really not kidding. She couldn't believe it. In fact, she said to them, oh, do you go outside? Jamie, she was kind, just a slightly peeved, but she was fine. She was like, uh, yeah, every day. But I looked at that and I thought, that's a mark. That's the seventh mark. That's the kind of look you want to get. And then I kept thinking, and I was reminded of the, the, the project that I did, remember, several years ago now. Uh, I've told you about this several times now, uh, uh, where you would go out and, and you would just sit in your front lawn and, and you wouldn't, you know, by and large, wouldn't be on a phone, wouldn't be reading a book. You were just present, right? And you were just there, just trying to love your neighbor. But you know, you have to put yourself in a position to love your neighbor. You can't just love your neighbor from afar. And so just sit there, see what happens. And and, and this actually happened to a couple of different folks, but one of them that I'm thinking of specifically, he was out there for a few weeks when finally, you know, one of the neighbors comes over and he's got like, hey, I gotta tell you, man, you are freaking the neighbors out. <laughs> like, I don't know what you're doing, 
but you have to, you, I mean, something has to change because this is really awkward for everybody. Now, when I first heard that story, I laughed. I thought it was funny. I still think it's funny. But I got to tell you, as I kept thinking about it, I realized that's it. Like, that's the kind of thing that we need more people doing. You know, the truth is this, is that that's the kind of thing that, that elicits questions. Like, why, as was asked, why are you just sitting there? You know, you know what they wouldn't have been freaked out about? If he was sitting there on his phone. You know what they wouldn't have been freaked out about if he wasn't there at all? They wouldn't have been freaked out if he was reading something. They wouldn't have been freaked out if he was doing his lawn. But they were freaked out. It caused questions and concerns because of the fact that he was simply being present. Now, I've said before, it seems to me it might be much more of a disease if we think the people who are unhealthy are the ones who don't have to be on their phones. And as I kept thinking about this, I realized something. And I realized that I might just be getting old. I I believe I am getting more curmudgeonly. It feels like it's happening a little early in life, but that's okay. And so this could just be because I'm getting old. But I got to tell you, I'm kind of getting to the point where I simply don't care nearly as much as I used to with what everyone else thinks about what is important or what brings meaning, or what brings purpose, or significant, or even what makes sense. Because i got to tell you that I've had a lot of conversations with people over the year, and everybody's got an idea, and they love to tell you, and the crowds love to tell you, oh, you know what you need? I don't know, tell me. You need... You need to have the right kind of house and the right kind of neighborhood with the right kind of car and the right amount of children here in Zionsville, Carmel, you know, three to four at least, you know, and, and you got to have all those things. And if you have all those things, then everything is going to make sense. Then everything's going to be great. Then you'll, you'll understand life. Well, here's what's happened. I've lived in a you know, fine house and a great neighborhood. I finally have a decent vehicle. It took me a while, but at least for almost a year now, I've got four children They're just picture perfect. Everything is great. But you know what? When I look around at my neighbors, you know what I realize? That they are broken. They are lonely. They are struggling with addictions. They are anxious, just like so many other people. And what I realize is this picture for, oh, if you just reach this, then everything's going to be great. That is not true. You know what you need? Oh, oh, please tell me. You know what will make you feel just right? You need to make sure you have the latest Apple Watch and the latest uh, technology of all sorts. And if you have that, then you can kind of get on and you can always access your email. Oh, this is going to be great. And, and you, can, you can get on just the right social media and, and have just the right influencers who are telling you exactly how to live your life. And you can see how everybody else is doing. And if you have all those things, then you're going to be, then you're going to be up to snuff and everything's going to be great. You know what I see? I see people who are consumed by what they do not have because they sit there and they look on their phones or wherever else and they begin to see this life that seems to be perfect and yet is always outside of their grasp and they're wasting their time and their life and they've told us that if you just did enough of it, if you just clicked on enough links, then you're going to reach the promised land. And it is not true. 
You know what you need? Tell me, what do I need? I can't wait. Tell me what I need. Well, <laughs> you need to make sure no one ever can tell you what you can or cannot do. YOLO. You only live once. You better suck the marrow out of life. Just suck it all out. Then, then you'll find your true self. Here's what I've discovered. And this is especially afflicting of our younger folks, it seems to me. Which is now there is such intense pressure to make sure if I only live once, which is not a Christian theology, if anyone's curious, but if I YOLO and I have all of these options and everyone tells me, my parents, my teachers, everyone tells me that I, that I can be anything, it paralyzes people because they are scared to death that they are going to make the wrong decision or they begin to do one thing and then try to do something else and all of their time is spent going from one thing to the next, next and they are absolutely exhausted. You know what you need? I don't care what you think I need. You see, I have a sneaking suspicion as I look at this story and if we were to hear Jesus, now you can test it because I may just be one more person throwing one more thing in the hopper, so you test this, but I have a sneaking suspicion that he may look at us and say, you know what you need? You need to be an idiot. Not just say the idiot, but you need to be an idiot like the psalmist. An idiot for the Almighty. What you need is to not listen to all of these others in the crowd who keep promising you things that simply cannot be true. And so the question then that I've been wrestling with this week is what is it that I need to do? What is it that we need to do? What might we do to be crazy and to be looked at like there must be something that isn't right. Now here's the thing. As I thought about that, I realized that's a lot of pressure. Now we like to achieve around here. So if you tell us something like that, we might be like, all right, tell me the 1,000 things we got to do. And I'm going to do it. I'm going to check it off the list and I'll be done. So I don't want you to try to think through what are a thousand things I can do to be crazy. I just want you to try to think about what's one. What's one thing that you can do that you feel fairly certain that if you did it, people would think that you must have lost your mind? Maybe it's a financial planner. Maybe you say, you know what, Mr. Financial Planner, Mrs. Financial Planner, here's what I've decided. I've decided I'm going to be even more generous than I have been because I realize you don't, YOLO. We got more than one life. We have a resurrected life. And despite his or her questioning, well, you do realize, right, if you do that, that uh, I can't promise you that you're going to have money until you're 200 years old. And uh, I've also got to tell you that your great-great-grandchildren might not receive anything that you have. Uh, so I think that you might be crazy. Yes, I think I am. Or it might be, as I said a few weeks ago, you know, it might be, you might get that same look 
from a coach or even from your child when you say, you know what we're going to do this Sunday? We've decided we're actually going to go to worship this Sunday rather than going to that game. And despite the fact, Mr. or Mrs. Coach, despite the fact, child, that you now think I must not love you because of the fact that I'm clearly messing up your professional career, I want you to know that the actual reason why I'm doing this is because I love you desperately. And I'm okay with you thinking I must be a fool. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe you decide this summer, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to wait. I'm going to do something. I'm going to invite people over all the time. I'm going to sit out on my front lawn and I'm just going to sit there happy and looking around at people and I'm going to keep doing it until finally someone comes up and says to me, man, what is wrong with you? Everyone is talking about you. And when you do, don't say it out loud, but say it inside. That's the seventh mark. Got it. Now, please hear me. I don't know what it is for you. It could be any of those things. It could be something else. It's not my business what it is for you. What is my business is just to simply say, how are we being fools for Christ? There will be people who look at us and who scoff at us and who mock us and who think that we have lost our marbles. But here's what I want you to consider. In a few years, once those aforementioned people are done trying to fulfill their lives by following after every picture-perfect ideal of what a family looks like, or having gotten the latest technology for the last 30 years and having been fully devoted to that, or after having spent all their time trying to do everything they can, chasing after everything to make sure that they are able to lay on their bed saying YOLO and then just quickly die and go on. That when they look back, here's what I want you to know. What they will remember, I can promise you this, is not the crowd who told them that they should do everything that makes all the sense in the world, that is completely logical. What they will remember are those few people in their lives who lived almost what seemed like financially reckless lives or who raised their children in this strangely countercultural way or who seemed to always be available and present to simply listen. And when they are struggling and they are wondering where true life has its meaning and purpose, when they are broken and are wondering how can they find true healing and love and grace, it is only when we have been foolish enough that they might begin for the first time to wonder whether or not instead of following the crowds who seem to agree on everything but don't actually know what they're agreeing to, but maybe they should begin to follow the one who seemed so crazy that he was willing to throw aside anything that we might experience what it means to be loved by him. To what might Christ be calling us? What would it look like in your life to be called 
an idiot for the Almighty. Let us pray. God, what we know is that you love us and embrace us. And you want us to know how in love with us you are. What we also know, Lord, is that as we receive that love, we are also called then to reflect that same crazy love to do things that may make no logical sense to those around us. And yet as we do so, Lord, not only are we shaped more like you, but we also serve as a witness to those around us. Those who may be growing weary of chasing after one dream after another that makes promises that they can never fulfill. So give us the strength, the courage, to follow you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.